1: Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick
2: When you look at really the whole context of Scripture and see Israel in the corporate sense and the church in the corporate sense that's how God has exercised His election of choice God has chosen a bride to be holy and blameless for his son. We are that church. And if you exercise your free will and you respond to the grace of God, so shall you be saved and be a part of the chosen in that corporate sense. Do not let this torment you into wondering whether you were that one of those petals that God plucked for the good side. This
1: is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Ephesians. If God selects specific individuals for redemption while casting others aside for damnation, how do you know if you are one of His chosen ones? This question has vexed many Christians for centuries. But as Pastor Gary teaches us in today's message you can breathe a sigh of relief. He humbly contends that if you step back and look at the concept of chosen as referring to the whole church and not just individual Christians, it leaves room for the free will that Scripture tells us God gave us from the very beginning. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you How you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: I would say to you that I am, and Cornerstone is, Calminian. Or it is Arminivist. <laughs> not because that's a cop-out. Now, some people think it's a cop-out. And that drives five-point Calvinists and five-point Armini- Arminian. It's crazy when somebody says that. It's like, you can't be. You have to be in one camp or another. I'm not saying th- th- those, that, I, that I'm a Calvinian because I believe it's a cop-out. I'm saying that because I honestly believe that's what the Bible teaches. That it's okay to allow those tensions to remain because the Bible allows those tensions to remain that it is okay to talk about the sovereignty of God and believe it fully and talk about the responsibility of man and believe that also fully. God is sovereign, and man has a free will and is responsible. Spurgeon was once asked how he could reconcile those two things. He said, I don't need to. He said, you don't need to reconcile friends. Those two things are friends in Scripture. It is human attempt that has made them enemies, and has therefore made the church very divisive concerning the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Now, you're going to hear my slant. I do have a slant in this. Everybody does if you study this to any degree. But I have that slant slant based on how I am convinced of the overall presentation of Scripture, not just one verse here, one verse there, of the overall presentation of Scripture regarding God and man. But I do make allowances, because I think we should, for this debate among loving, good-willed Christians. It all depends on what angle you approach certain texts from. And this is the truth about Calvinism and Arminianism. They are two different animals, but yet they're compatible in that it just simply depends what angle you're coming from. Now, two angles for you to consider. Again, I warned you in advance, this is a lengthy introduction. But two angles for you to consider as we look here in the Ephesians chapter 1 in just a moment. Two angles to consider. First of all, how do you view God's sovereignty? How do you view God's sovereignty? And there are really two ways to view it. And at the heart of the debate are these two views. Do you see God's sovereignty as... One who is a ruling monarch, that God exercises divine will, or as a loving parent, one who exercises divine love. Okay? That will determine the angle of how you filter scripture. Now, I will tell you, this is me personally speaking. My my slant is towards God as a loving parent. Okay? Okay? Do I believe in the sovereignty of God, that he exercises his divine will? Of course I do. But when I read verses like 2 Peter 3, 9, it says God wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance. It is incompatible in my mind, and it is intellectually dishonoring to say that God in his sovereignty will individually select some to heaven and damn others to hell. So I see through the lens of God as a loving parent. But you may choose to see him through the lens of a ruling monarch. Both are true in different aspects. But what is the predominant view? Because that's going to shape the way you interpret Scripture, at least on the lines of salvation in particular. The second angle that I want us to consider is, how do you view God's choosing of us? because it is clear in scripture that he chooses. But again, is it that he chooses us based on his sovereign predetermination? Or does he choose us because he knows those who will choose him? And so in that sense, we are chosen. And and so the, the, the angles to that question are either individually or corporately. Now, um, here's where, where some of you, I, I just want to challenge in, in your thinking about God's way of choosing us. And, and let me challenge you with this question. When you look into the Old Testament, I'm talking about just the overall context of Old Testament Scripture. Who are the chosen of the Old Testament? Israel. The nation of Israel are those who are chosen over and over again in Scripture. We see verses. I'll just rattle some off to you. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Deuteronomy fourteen two. for you are a people holy to the Lord your God out of all the peoples on the face of the earth the Lord has chosen you plural the people of Israel to be his treasured possession Psalm 135 4 for the Lord has chosen Jacob to be his own Israel to be his treasured possession. Isaiah 41, 8 and 9, but you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners, I called you, I said, you are my servant, I have chosen you and have not rejected you. And lastly, Amos 3:2. you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. So in the Old Testament, it is clear that God's choosing is in a corporate sense. He chose the nation of Israel as his inheritance. He chose the nation of Israel through whom the, div- the divine message of salvation would ultimately come to the world because Christ is obviously Jewish of the tribe of Judah, of the people of the Jewish nation. Okay, So all through the Old Testament, God's choosing is in a corporate sense. Now here's the challenge. Why is it then when we get to the New Testament we suddenly make it individualistic. By that I mean this. The debate I constantly hear among Christians is, is this person selected divinely by God and this person rejected or is that person rejected and this person accepted? And the whole concept of election and chosen is reduced to a single individual. Let me tell you something, that is tormenting. That is tormenting in the sense of you're going to potentially, potentially be wondering constantly, am I one of those who was divinely chosen, sovereignly predetermined to be able to go to heaven? Or am I one that God has whimsically, kind of like, you know, on the petals of a daisy, she loves me, she loves me not, she loves me, she loves me not. That's how the uh, the concept of God's sovereign choosing and divine election has been reduced to this idea of individuals. No, no, no. I submit to you that the best way to understand chosen is in the same way that Israel was chosen, in that the church in the New Testament is the chosen corporate understanding of God's election. Okay, now, the church has not replaced Israel. That's bad theology. It's called replacement theology, and it's, and it's very unbiblical. Um, Martin Luther believed in replacement theology. He also said a a lot of very anti-Semitic things. Read a lot of stuff that Martin Luther wrote. Very anti-Semitic, okay? I don't believe in replacement theology, which simply says that the church has replaced Israel and that all the blessings intended for Israel have now been given to the church and God is done with Israel. God is not done with Israel. Israel, Romans says, has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles come in and so all Israel will be saved. God is not done with Israel. But I'm speaking of this in terms of a parallel, not a replacement. If God speaks over and over again in the Old Testament about how he has chosen Israel in a corporate sense, why have we reduced it in the New Testament to an individualistic sense when, in fact, actually there's a very strong verse that shows the corporate application? Here it is. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen People, is he speaking corporately or individually there? Corporately, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, again, I would challenge some of you who respectfully, but there's room for debate on this. But I believe that some people have reduced the sovereign election of God to individualistic application. When you look at really the whole context of scripture and see Israel in the corporate sense and the church in the corporate sense, that's how God has exercised his election of choice. God has chosen a bride to be holy and blameless for his son. We are that church. And if you exercise your free will and you respond to the grace of God, so shall you be saved and be a part of the chosen in that corporate sense. Do not let this torment you into wondering whether you were that one of those petals that God plucked for the good side. This is a corporate application here. Now, some of you might say, wait a minute, Romans chapter 9, if you know Romans chapter 9, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That sounds pretty individualistic. Well, without taking you to Romans 9, you can go home and do your own homework later. But I will tell you this much. When you look at the context of even that statement that God makes through the pen of Paul in Romans chapter 9, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. It is in a corporate sense. Because when you look at the beginning of Romans chapter 9 and Romans 9 verses 4 and 5, he says, Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs, plural, is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. He's talking about the Jewish people. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ who is God over all forever and ever praised. Amen. Then he speaks about Jacob whom he's loved, Esau whom he has hated in a corporate sense regarding the nation of Israel. And then at the end of Romans chapter 9, he pulls it into a corporate sense again and talking about the church saying, I will call them my people and they will be called sons of the living God. So how do you view God's choosing of us individually, corporately, thus as a part of his corporate chosen ones, Israel received special benefits that were not available to others. And just as there are special privileges to us who are in Christ as the church. God has chosen a bride. He has predestined her for his son. And he has chosen that bride, Paul says here, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's the lengthy introduction. With the ten minutes we have left, the book of Ephesians falls neatly into two sections. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are about position. It's about our position in Christ, and Paul emphasizes what God has done in the first three chapters. And then in the last three chapters, four, five, and six, it's about practice. It's about how we are to walk, what we must do in response to what God has done for us. So with that said, let's take a look at this first section. Paul... An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints. That Greek word is hagios. It just means the sacred, the holy. We are in that sense all saints because we have been separated unto holiness for the Lord. Christians, when I say all, Christians, those who know the Lord. He writes to the saints, to Christians in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, make a note in the margin of your Bible From verse 3 to the end of verse 14, what we read at the start of our Bible study, verses 3 through 14 in the original Greek language are one sentence. One sentence. We have all this punctuation. It is one constant train of thought that Paul is writing here. My English teacher would have failed him for a run-on sentence, but... (laughs) But he's writing one lengthy sentence because he's communicating one main idea here. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. That term heavenly realms is used five times uh, in in the book here to the Ephesians. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, I want you to, I'm just going to key in on, on some of the verbs here. Notice he has blessed us. We're going to see in in verse 4, he has chosen us. Uh, Also in verse 4, he loved us. Verse 5, he predestined us. Verse 5, he adopted us. Verse 7, he redeemed us. Verse 13, he saved us. Verse 13, he sealed us. And I know I just rattled all that off. And you're like, where are all those words? We'll see as we go through. But I'm just emphasizing, notice what God has done. That's chapters 1 through 3. Paul's going to emphasize, this is the sovereign work of God. This is what he has done. He has blessed us. In the heavenly realms of every spiritual blessing in Christ, four, verse four, "For he chose us in him before the creation of the world." That's very challenging, isn't it? Paul is saying, in other words, this is no afterthought of God. This was put in motion before the world was even created. Why? Because God in his foreknowledge knew all things, knows all things, and he knew that man would fail. Well, if he knew man would fail in sin, why did he even create man to begin with? Because God wants a loving relationship with us. And so God created the human race knowing full well that Humanity would sin against him, so anticipating that, because he knows all things, he put in motion a plan to redeem us from our sins so that we might have that relationship with him. The Bible even says that about Christ in terms of before the creation of the world, and in First 1 Peter 1.20, it says, Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So we were chosen before the creation of the world. Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world. The whole redemptive plan of God was in the heart of God and the mind of God before the world was even created. This is not some afterthought. This is intentional on the part of God because he loves us. Even, even John would write in Revelation 13 and verse 8, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb, that is Jesus, that was slain from the creation of the world. Try to get your mind around that one. That is even suggesting, because God is outside of time and space, that Jesus was even, in effect, crucified even before the creation of the world. This is, this is deep and profound stuff. But God's redemptive plan put in motion... Even before the creation of the world, we are chosen to be, the rest of verse 4, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, again, if you look at this individualistically, that's important. I want to be holy and blameless personally before God, and I can only be that through Christ. But when you think of it corporately as the church, this is the bride that he is preparing for his son. To be holy and blameless in his sight and in love, verse 5, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So there's one of those heavy words, predestined. He predestined us. Again, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And when you, when you consider predestination, you should also take into account God's foreknowledge. First Peter 1 Peter 1-2, Peter writes, You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And in Romans 8.29, it says, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. So there is the element of foreknowledge in His predestination. He predestined us to be adopted as His sons, or daughters, it's a generic term, through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. So a moment ago I rattled off a bunch of verbs, but now you have some nouns here. Pleasure and will. Also in verse 6, you're going to see the noun grace. Down in verse 11, you're going to see the word plan. God has a plan. God has a purpose, a pleasure, a will. He has his grace that he's exercising here. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. That's through Christ. In him, we have redemption. To be redeemed is to be bought back. We have redemption through his blood. We're being redeemed from sin, from our old ways, from our old life through Christ's sacrifice, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head even Christ in him we were also chosen he repeats it again having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory so again you know he's talking in a plural sense here we the church now here's where he interjects man's responsibility, verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed. That's our part two. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So right after Paul gets through saying all these things about how you've been blessed by God, chosen by God, predestined by God, he lavished on us uh, all this wisdom and understanding, he says, all right, now, in response to all this, you heard, you heard the message of the gospel, and you believed. So the tension is intact here, and that's okay. It's like God is sovereignly choosing us, predestining us, To be conformed to the image of his son. He bought us by the blood of his son. And we hear and we believe. We respond. So there is this sovereign work of God. There is this responsibility of man in response to the grace of God. That he initiates to draw us and to woo us. So it is both here. And that we've been marked with a seal of the promised Holy Spirit. So when we receive Christ... We get God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a whole other Bible study about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, but you can't separate the Trinity. So you do get the Holy Spirit as that mark, guaranteeing it's a deposit. It's God saying, there's more to come. Your your life has been redeemed. You've been bought by the blood of Christ and rescued out of the slavery of sin. But there is much more to come because this life is as good as it gets for a lot of people. For us, it's as bad as it gets. Because what we have awaiting for us is an eternal reward that far outweighs all of our momentary problems, all of our momentary grief, all of our momentary trials. So, this is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, our inheritance, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory.
1: New the book of Ephesians is a more formal letter from the Apostle Paul, touching on a variety of subjects, but landing on some major points that all followers of Jesus need to embody. One such passage reminds you that there's a war going on beyond what you can see. Spiritual forces are battling for your allegiance, but you can protect yourself. By immersing yourself in the Bible and spending time regularly with God and other believers, you'll be prepared to face whatever Satan tries to throw at you. Today, you've taken a step in that direction by joining Pastor Gary in this study on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to continue studying the book of Ephesians by revisiting some of Pastor Gary's previous teachings— you can do so at cornerstoneconnection.cc or download our mobile app to take these messages on the go with you. We'd love to meet you too, so if you're in the area, come join us this Sunday at 8.30, 10, or 11.45 a.m. at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We'll have a time of worship and Bible study, and we're always excited to meet new people. Be sure to tell us you listen to Cornerstone Connection. You'll find more information at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Pastor Gary has more to share from the book of Ephesians, so join us again on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul. You've got no place to go. But still you know. But you know. You're not alone.